0: This program is brought to you by the partners of Aruad Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support Aruad Awakening International today. Well, my friend, tonight you are in for a treat. The last couple of weeks we have featured parts one and two of Michael Rood's epic telling of the story of Purim, and tonight we finish up the series with a double header. So get ready for two episodes to wrap up Purim, The Making of a King's Bride. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun has set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Well, this is gonna be fun, especially since you're here now. Shabbat Shalom, Torah fans. Welcome to a double feature of Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. Tonight, we are featuring two one-hour episodes back-to-back to wrap up our series on Purim, the making of a king's bride. So don't go anywhere. This is gonna take a while, okay? So it's a story that has uncanny parallels to our lives today. It really does. Here's the description of tonight's episode that was written from Michael Rood like seven years ago. Check this out. As the storm clouds lower in the sky and even common freedoms fade like the setting of the liberty, uh, of liberty, the bride of Messiah, the true servants and disciples of Yeshua will soon realize that they, like the king's bride Hadassah, were born for such a time as this. Wow, that is prophecy. Purim could not be more pertinent to our lives than right now. So watch tonight's double feature with your spiritual eyes wide open. Now, you'll know the actual celebration of Purim was on Wednesday of this week, as seen on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected Biblical Hebrew calendar. Let's show it to you, there it is. We are now on the third Shabbat of the 12th month, just past Purim, and as we consider that, please welcome my co-host, Partner Services Manager, Pastor David Robinson. Good evening, I forgot about the fact that you were a pastor. You still are a pastor, correct? Yeah, yeah, still a pastor. Oh, that's wonderful, okay, well. That's how you, uh, you help everyone else in the, in the uh, ministry here is we all need a pastor. And <laughs> if, if
1: you've been called to be a pastor, you can try to walk away from that or take a break, but it just
0: is who you are. Yeah. You, know, you know, there's teachers and there's pastors. So, that's so Michael's right. a great teacher. Excellent teacher. Right, yeah. And as far as pastoring, he, he'll tell you himself I'm not the pastoring type. Just let me teach, let me get the message out, and that's my deal. But yep. you are a, a pastor. So. Yeah, I
1: love getting in the trenches with the sheep and the mess. And the the messes that sheep make. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, teachers (laughs) don't like to to go in the actual corral where the mess is. Okay, And they shouldn't because that's not their call.
0: That's right, absolutely. Now, uh, we have something really neat that has just uh, been started this month, and perhaps you've seen it on our website. It's our Amazon affiliate link. Mm -hmm. Now, people that, well, what's Amazon affiliate link? Why why would I care? Okay, well, here's why. So, if you go to aroodawakening.tv slash Amazon, now you don't have to click one of our website banners to to get there, you can actually just type that into your browser, arudeawakening.tv slash Amazon. And then what I want you to do is save that link, make it a bookmark, bookmark it. Because whenever you go to Amazon, consider that your Amazon link. Why would you wanna do that? Because whenever you shop Amazon using that link, it's not gonna cost you any more, but Amazon will return some money back to the ministry. It's like a donation. Mm -hmm. Donation you don't even have to think about. You just shop on Amazon, a portion of whatever you buy comes back to us, and it just happens every month. So if you would do that, that would help us out tremendously and it won't cost you a dime. That's right. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, It's a neat program that Amazon has. I mean, we may criticize Amazon for all kinds of different things, but you know what? This is one neat thing they've got. Why don't we take advantage of it? So yeah, go to rootawakeningtv slash Amazon. Make that a bookmark. Consider that your Amazon bookmark and use that, please, if you would, every time you go to Amazon. Just another way
1: of helping the ministry and Purim, the time we're in now. And the the parallels to the story of Purim. you know, we need to get this message out. And yeah, we really I do. wish it didn't cost anything, I really do. But it does, and we, and everything you, our partners are donating to this ministry is helping us tremendously. So yep, that would be another way of helping the ministry.
0: Now here's another way you can do that. So we are running out of time, actually. Uh, you know, a few days left, but mm-hmm. we have a, a teaching from Yehuda Glick. And you might think, Yehuda Glick, where do I know that name from? He was ran for president of Israel a few years ago, and he's also a temple activist. So you may have seen him on the Temple Mount, you know, bringing crowds of people up there. A few years ago, he was actually shot point blank by uh, by yeah. Uh, a lot I of remember terrorists.
1: the story. I didn't know his name, but I remember that story. Yeah, and didn't know it was this guy.
0: Yeah. So he he was basically leading people up to to the Temple Mount to pray because it, it was his uh, su- supposition. That it was mm. quite true that. The Temple Mount is for all peoples to come up, for everybody to come up and worship Yehovah. And that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. And so he was just saying, you know what, I'm just gonna do it. So he did that. Well, the Muslim people did not like that because they claim territory there because of the mosques up there. And so he was walking away one evening and somebody came up to him and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Glick, you are an enemy of of, uh, Islam Mm -hmm. and shot him. Point blank. Uh, But he survived, of course. He's here to tell his story, and that's why Keith Johnson calls him the modern-day Maccabee, which is the title of this month's teaching for the February love gift. So with a uh, donation of $50 or more, we'll give you this from Yehuda's own words about why he thinks the Temple Mount should be uh, for all peoples and how he's attempting to do it. Right, and for a $100 gift or more,
1: I mean, you can get the teaching, but you also get this uh, olive wood, stainless steel, Mezuzah, um, that with the cap, you can take the cap off right here, and you actually have a torch scroll in it. That is so cool. And so, these are really, I could tell you stories of uh, opportunities to talk to people about your faith with this on your door from pizza delivery eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, even had, uh, I don't know what you would call them, people that w- didn't want our ring to get, you know, to yeah. see it, but you know, they see this on your door and they think, okay, he's not a believer in Messiah. You can so. really
0: mess with the pizza guy saying, <laughs> your, your tip is inside there. Go for yeah, you it. You got to get this out. You got to get your tip out. But this, is, uh,
1: this uh, is a wonderful piece to have on your doorway. And, um, and, and like I said, it's a great ministry tool. It is something that we give you uh, in our appreciation of your donation. So um, yeah, we really do appreciate you guys. Absolutely.
0: Now, there's also a gift for $300 or more. $300 but we will let the uh, we'll let the we'll let the commercial tell that because we need to tell you about Passover as well while oh, that's right. we only have a couple minutes left. So March 18-19 is Passover. Uh, Yehuda is going to be here. Who else mm-hmm. is going to be here? Chef Rich Hall, we had him last year doing some uh, recipes. He and Chef, he and I are going to do that. Uh Nehemiah and Linnell, his wife are going to be here. Uh, Keith Johnson is going to be here. Dr. Tom Lokensgard and yourself, is gonna be Yeah, you guys are yeah. going to do something together. Absolutely, yeah. So this is going to be all kinds of great stuff, all kinds of great things, March 18 and 19. And uh, if... In case there's a nadar bet. In case there's a nadar bet, that's right. Uh, in case there's a nadar bet, we're going to move it off till April. Right, that would be April 15, 16. April 15, 16, thank you. Yes, I had a... One well, of those moments, uh, we lots, all have them, right? Momentary labs are yeah, reasoning funny has a second. Yeah. Now, why are we gonna do that? Because an 8R bet is also, uh, that's what's needed if the barley in, in uh, Israel is not ready. Right. And it's supposed to be ready by March 3rd, and we're kind of going, eh, we better make plans in case it isn't. So anyhow. So anyway, so March 18, 19, plan for it. If not, we'll let you know, and then we'll push it off to April 15, 16 if we have to. But that is uh, Passover this year. It doesn't cost you a thing. Just go to PassoverCharlotte.com. You can register for free. Well, if it's free, why do I have to register? Because we need your email address in order to send you things. Send you To link. let you know, yeah, there's a link for number one. You gotta know the link where to go. Uh, there's also a password. There's also a, a 20% off coupon for our store during that weekend. There's also uh, recipes we're gonna give you, kids' coloring pages, all kinds of stuff. So we need your email address. So you gotta register so we can get that, okay? So that's how that works. Right. All right, so that is Passover coming up. March 15, 16, very close. Hopefully. 17, 18, sorry. 18,
1: 19, and maybe 15, 16 18, if there's <laughs> an Adar bet. Which is bet meaning two, so you have yes. another month of Adar. Yes, listen to David. He's more on the ball today no, than I'm I am. Just, okay. My brain's just probably just a little, thinking a little bit better than yours right now. Maybe. <laughs> Well, we
0: better let Michael get to things.
2: Okay, yeah, so, so a so rare so to Michael.
0: <laughs> a rare double feature right now. We're playing the final two episodes of Michael Rood's epic telling of the story of Esther tonight. Back to back. So stay tuned for that and get ready for the kiddish with Michael. That's up next. Against all odds, the Maccabees rose up and claimed victory to restore Jehovah's Temple in the second century BC. Over 2,000 years later, a modern-day Maccabee is once again clearing the way for the third and final temple of Yehovah.
1: The reason we need it is you don't want a terror base in the center of your capital, in
0: the holiest place in the world. We want this place to be a world center of peace. Amen. In this month's Love Gift teaching, the modern-day Maccabee, Temple activist and Israeli political figure Yehuda Glick shares his inspiring story to reclaim the Temple Mount in the name of Yehovah as a place for all peoples to worship the one true God. This inspiring teaching is not for sale and it's not available on YouTube, but Michael Rood will send you this teaching as a gift for your donation. Donate a $50 love gift and we'll send you the modern day Maccabee on DVD or Blu-ray Or for a donation of $100, we'll send you the modern-day Maccabee plus an olive wood mezuzah with stainless steel overlay etched with a blessing for your home. Or with a donation of $300, we'll send you the modern-day Maccabee, the olive wood mezuzah with stainless steel overlay, and a beautiful Torah pointer featuring rich red and black colors and gold tone accents. These gifts are a limited time offer from Michael Rood to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. The modern day McAbee gift collections are available only in February and supplies are limited. Call now to receive your gifts, 888-766-3610. That's 888-766-3610 or get your gifts online at MonthlyLoveGift.com.
2: The Apostle Paul said that Yeshua nailed the dogmas, the doctrines and commandments of men, of the arche and exousia, that he overcame, that he nailed their commandments, their man-made dogmas to the cross. And because of that, we are not to allow any of the Archae and exousia, any of the religious authorities of men who made up their own commandments to judge us. Because every one of the feasts of the Lord are prophetic shadow pictures of good things to come. So don't let any pagan, let no religious authority judge you concerning the Sabbath, the new moons. And on the Sabbath, we do not allow the world to judge us and tell us what to do. We know that Yeshua paid the price for us. And the last night he was with his disciples when he took the bread and he blessed the Most High with this blessing. Baruchata Yehovah haolam Hawam lechem Hinaratz. He said, This represents my body, which is now broken for you. As often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of him. And then Yeshua took the cup and he said, this represents the renewed covenant in my blood. This is what this represents. This is what it's always represented. Do this in remembrance of me. And he said that prayer, Baruchatah Yehovah, Elohino Malach HaOlam, Moray, Puri Hagafen. Blessed are you, Yahweh, our God, King of the Universe, Creator of the fruit of the vine. And He said, "Do this in remembrance of me, and don't let anyone disparage you. Do this until I come again, because I have made you priests and kings." Shabbat Shalom. Well, Shalom Torah fans, and welcome back to Purim, the making of the King's Bride. Tonight, you wanna put that gallows where? Well, tonight, we are going into the third part of this five-part teaching on the Megillah of Hadassah, or the Stroll of Esther, or Easter, as uh, she would be known in the English language. And tonight we're going to be in Easter, chapter three, verse one, and so please turn your Bibles there. Uh, Our whole story started out in the third year of Akashverosh, and it is at the end of a six-month World's Fair in which there is a seven-day feast. At the culmination of this feast, this is when Vashti, which means absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, she is then asked by the emperor to be brought in with the royal crown in a display of the most magnificence of the empire and she insults the emperor, uh, which is not allowed to stand. In the whole course of events, we see that after she insults her husband, she uh, is then put out from being the queen and uh, that pretty well, ends the problem that we had with Vashti in the first chapter, but then the king is looking for a bride. We see that there's a young Jewish girl that is named Hadassah, that in the sixth year of the reign of uh, Akashros, that is when she is then selected for the one year purification process, and with all the other young virgins in the empire, they are then brought in They are groomed, they are trained, they are prepared for that one year, and at the end of that one year, that is when Akashverosh says, I found my queen, Hadassah. He only knew her as Easter, which is the name of the Babylonian goddess of fertility, but this is in secret, no one knew that she was actually Jewish. And so we see that her cousin, Mordecai, who had raised her, Mordecai, which means little, he's kind of in the background, kind of insignificant, little, but yet he was the one that raised her and said, don't let anyone know who your people are. Well, it was during the seventh year of the reign of Rose, uh, or shortly thereafter, that two of the doorkeepers in the emperor's palace are making a plot to kill the emperor. Mordecai finds out, relates the information to Easter, then she makes it known to her husband, and so this is circumvented, the men are executed, they are hung, and we now move into chapter three because we're gonna see the hand of the Almighty is so prevalent in the book of Adasa. He is moving things, yet his name is not mentioned. And Easter, chapter three, verse one, after these things did King Akashros promote Haman which means the magnificent. The son of Hamaditha, it says in your King James, but it is literally Hamaditha, the doubled. The uh, The son of the doubled, the Agagite, the Agagite. And he advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And so now, this is after the time of Daniel, and as Daniel was a satrap, or the the head uh, under Darius, now we have, under Xerxes, we have Haman, the magnificent one, who is an Agagite. And he is the one who is put in this position. Now, we are going to understand why there are all these Boring genealogies in the Bible. They're not really boring at all. It's just that we have to know enough about the scriptures to know how important they are. And we see that uh, to understand the relationship between Mordecai and Haman and what is about to happen between the Jew and this Agagite, we have to go back to Esther 2.5. It says, in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Now, it doesn't give us all the generations here. As a matter of fact, it leaves out like 490 years. But it lets us know that Mordecai, that it goes all the way back to being a son of Kish, which is over 490 years earlier of Benjaminite. Now this shows that, that this is an unbroken lineage even though it doesn't describe every single generation that is there. Uh, we also see this in the uh, in the book of Matthew where there are 14 generations from uh, Abraham to David, uh, 14 generations from David to the carrying way into Babylon and 14 generations from the carrying way into Babylon under the Messiah. And we hear uh, some of the, uh, uh, the uh, anti-missionaries uh, a Jewish anti-missionary said well the you know, your scripture is not true because it doesn't have all of the uh, all the, the the lineage there no of course it doesn't It gives exactly 14 generations. It makes an internal Messora between in this pocket of generations, 14, 14 and 14, so that we see that it is unbroken. There is no question. And they have to admit that it is unbroken lineage, but yet there are three kings that are left out from this lineage. Why? Because there is an internal Messora being made of 14, 14, 14. It doesn't mean that there were only 14, it means it lists 14 and here are the names of these 14 so that when we get to Yeshua, we can find out that in the English and in the Greek text that they mistranslated a word that completely destroyed the lineage of Yeshua. In the Hebrew Matthew and also in the Aramaic, uh, it is maintained, it's correct but the Greeks mistranslated something. It was then worsened by in the English versions of the Bible and so no longer do you have 14, 14, 14. So I'm just saying that that the standard that they use, oh, your Bible can't be true, You know, the, the gospel lineage can't be true uh, because there are three kings missing. Oh, we got 490 years of people that are missing from the lineage of Kish and who's one of the sons of Kish? Saul, the first king of Israel. So we are looking, ladies and gentlemen, Mordecai, almost, almost royalty. And as it tells in 2 Samuel sixteen five through eight, out of the family of the house of Saul, there came a man whose name is Shimei, the son of Gerah. This is Shaul, or King Saul's brother. And so we see that Mordecai literally comes from Saul's brother, who then has uh, has a son named Shimei, and that is the lineage of Mordecai. But we are still in the household of Saul, of uh, of, of the son of Kish, and so now I want to go back to this uh, the the storyline of of Hadassah here, and to understand about this lineage of both Saul, the son of Kish, and this Agagite. In First Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 51, it says, Samuel said unto Saul, Thus saith the Yehovah of Oak. I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. How he laid in wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek. Utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not but slay both man and woman, infant, suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And we covered this in our last session of exactly who the Amalekites were. But what I did not bring out was that who the Amalekites actually, uh, what the offspring line is. Because we find this in Genesis. Turn to Genesis 36, 12, and we see that Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz. Eliphaz was Esau's son. And Timnah bare to Eliphaz Amalek. And so Amalek is actually a grandson of Esau who went forth and dwelt with the, the cursed Canaanites, which they are known for their, their gross immorality, murdering, sex perversion. That's what they're known for. Uh, and that is why uh, when we have these uh, Amalekites dwelling with them, uh, nothing good is going to come out of these Amalekites either. And so in 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verses seven, we're going to continue reading. So Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah till you come to Shur that it is over against Mitzrayim or Egypt, but he took Agag Agag, now remember that Haman is an Agagite. His father is an Agagite. But he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites alive, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the falings and the lambs, all that was good, and he would not utterly destroy them. And so Samuel then went back to Saul in verse 26 and says, Jehovah, has rejected you from being king over Israel. Because he did not do what he was told to do. He was told to completely obliterate these people. But the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, and Agag the king, and it's not just Agag the king, it's his family, okay? Because the Agagites are gonna continue on. Okay, he's brought Agag, and, and it says that, that as Samuel turned about to go away, Shaul laid hold of, upon the skirt of his mantle. In the King James, in the New Testament, read the hem of his garment. But you in, know, in uh, from the Hebrew, it reads the, the uh, skirt of his mantle. This is the tzitzit, grabbing onto the tzitzit on the hem of his garment, and it tore, it ripped it off. And Samuel said unto him, Yehovah hath rent the kingdom of Israel from you this day. It's over. And it was over. Because he made excuse after excuse and finally the excuses ran out. This one thing, and just as the Almighty said in Exodus seventeen sixteen, Yahweh Yehovah has sworn that he will make war with Amalek from generation to generation. See, this is why Saul was put on the job. You take him out now. I have sworn I will make war against them Because of what they did, this will not be forgotten. Now they continue to do it. Now you take care of business. And because Saul refused to take care of business and he saved the best alive, now, hundreds of years later, In Babylon, the number one man in the empire under the king is the offspring of Agag and Amalekite. Now we're going to see the plot thicken. Now we're in verse 2 and all the king's servants, this is back in Hadassah chapter three, verse one, all the king's servants were in the, that were in the king's gate, they bowed in reverence, had magnificence Haman, for the king had commanded concerning him. He said that everyone will bow down and respect him. He's my number one man. He's on my right hand. You respect him like you respect me. But Mordecai, the little man, he refused to bow, nor did he Give him any respect. Oh, we know what Haman felt like Rodney Dangerfield. He got absolutely no respect from the little man. Then the king's servants, which are in uh, the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's commandment? And now, in a verse, it's going to say that he told him he was a Jew. But, you know, that's shorthand. He probably said, well, let me tell you a little story about this Agagite, about Haman, and about my great, 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 uncle. granduncle. Let me tell you what happened. And let me tell you what the Amalekites did to us when we were coming out of Egypt. Let me give you the background. And so he told the story, and then finally, they understood, but they said, it doesn't really matter. You are not living in the land of Israel. Your king didn't do his job, but now this man is in charge of the empire under Xerxes, under Akashverosh. So it came to pass, in verse four, when they spoke daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, then they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand, because he, he told them, Mordecai told him that he was a Jew and gave him the background. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow nor reverence him, and it's like bowing down and reverencing Arafat, or, or and, and bowing down and negotiating with his Ba'Allah. His Ba'ala. they don't quite pronounce it like that on the news, but you know, these are the murdering followers of Allah, the fictitious moon god invented by Mohammed, okay? Or Hamas, the destroyers, okay? No respect. No respect. And he thought evil to lay hands on Mordecai alone. But when they, the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, had shown in the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. He said, I'm not just gonna take out Mordecai, I'm gonna kill them all because now he knows these are the people that nearly wiped them out. These are the people that my ancestors, because listen, 127 provinces, 127 kingdoms. This is the top of the kingdom of what's left of the Amalekites, and now he's sitting at the top of the empire of the Persian Empire. So he just sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the entire kingdom of Akashverosh, even all the people of Mordecai. So in the first month, that is the month Nisan, now really, the month is not named Nisan until right here, right now, once we are in Babylon, then we are picking up the Babylonian names of these months. But the first month is the month of the Aviv. Now, in your King James Version, it'll say the month of Abib, Okay, I don't care whether you pronounce it with the the vet or the bat, it really doesn't matter. Um, uh, Jews today pronounce it with the vet, okay, aviv. But it is always ha-aviv. There is no month called aviv or a month called aviv. No, it's the month of the aviv, and it begs the question, the aviv what? Because aviv is an ancient Hebrew agricultural term that describes the maturity of the crop known as barley. It only refers to barley, and we find out that when the barley is aviv, that is when we celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we present the first fruits of the barley harvest. And the barley must be a v before you can present the first fruits. And that's why we have to occasionally add on a 13th month in order to allow the barley to mature. That's why each year we do not know when Passover is going to be until the end of the 12th month. The first sliver of the new moon appears and the barley is of eve, then we celebrate Passover that month. If not, then we put it off for a month. But now it is the month of, the, of Nisan, as it's known in, in, uh, in Babylon, in the 12th year of King akash So now Hadassah has been queen now for five years. And that is the month that they cast poor. That is the lot. So there was a lot that they cast. This is a, kind of a, a way of choosing. You know, you can do a three-man way, and that's, you know, uh, uh, what's that? A stone and paper and scissors, okay. You know, this is a way that uh, some people cast lots. But it says that they cast poor, that is a lot, before Haman from day to day, from month to month to the 12th month, that is the month of Dar. Now. Let's just take a look at this. Let's use the simplest way for deciding something. This is how they start out NFL games with the simplest possible way of figuring out who is going to kick off and who's going to receive which end of the field uh, that they commence play from. They use a simple coin toss. And if we start right now at the first month and then we are going to start and we flip a coin, which is the simplest way, And we flip that coin because we're just looking for heads to come up once. The first time heads come up, boom, that's the month that we are going to put in uh, place a plan. And what the plan is, to exterminate all the Jews. That's what it is. And so, it comes up. For the first six months, the first six times they flip the coin. First six times, it's never heads. The chance of that happening is one in ten point six seven. And you know, and every month they flip it, and it doesn't come up. They're starting to think, you know, something's wrong with this coin. Now this is the simplest thing. If it if it's doubled, if it's like two things that have to come up together at the same time black and white, and both of them have to come up at the same time, then the odds significantly multiply exponentially from there. But let's just do the simplest thing, because this is showing that the hand of the Almighty is working in this very thing. In the whole history of time, we are going to see that actually things in the book of Daniel are going to be based upon the events of Purim, and it's all back in the days of Haman, a simple coin toss. And so now, he finally gets to the 11th month, and for the first time, it comes off heads. The chances is one in 186.2 times. It's showing us the hand of the Almighty is in here because it's going all the way around the year to the final month. This is going to give the greatest amount of time for all these things to transpire. And now, we found the month, and now it's going to be flipped. The lot is going to be cast. And again, we don't know exactly how the lot is done. I'm giving you just the simplest version, a coin toss. And now, it's on the 13th. And so on the 13th, It's one in 620.5 chances, one in 620.5 that it wouldn't come up heads until the 13th day. And so now, we are hopefully, either at the end of this segment or next segment, we're going to get into Daniel's sealed prophecies because the Almighty is in charge of the coin toss. Worst case scenario, that this will have to end up being one of the DVDs to our ambassador club members out there. But let's go on, in verse eight. And Haman said unto Rosh, there is a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people, neither they keep the king's law. Therefore it's not for the king's prophet to suffer them. You know, the guy's just a liar, okay? You know, the, 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 the Jews in the land have been nothing but good uh, for the entire empire. And he said, oh, these people, they, they don't respect your laws. Why? Because they live on a higher level. You know, it's like um, uh, uh, John Adams, or excuse me, Samuel Adams. Uh, who said that we're not basing the future of America upon the Constitution, far from it. we're basing it upon every man's ability to govern himself according to the commandments of God. Because if you govern yourself according to the commandments of God, you are living on a higher level. You don't need to make laws for these people. Now we have 2.4 million laws in America. Why? People simply will not govern themselves according to the Torah of God, no. You know, we've been taught in our schools that there is no God. It's survival of the fittest. If it feels good, do it. Oh, this is post-Christian America. Uh, if you people have not heard yet, oh yes, our president has announced it. It's a, This is no longer just a Christian uh, country. You know, we've got all sorts of uh, of twisted religious perversion out there that is now acceptable, okay? I mean, you know, even cults that call for the murder of everyone that's not in them, that's now acceptable. Oh, that's, that's actually a, a, a very revered uh, religion in America. No one dares say anything about this sick, twisted, murdering religion because the president's in bed and bows down to their leaders, okay? In bed with them, that's a figure of speech, okay? But now, we We take a look at this, and yeah, he's just lying. Haman's a liar yeah yeah th- this there is no honor in this magnificent person at all. not a bit of honor is due him, and that's why Mordecai refuses to even look his way. He wouldn't even spit his way if he had to go out of his way, therefore, it's not the king's prophet to to allow them to continue if it please the king. let it be written that they may be destroyed and this is what I'll do, I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. You know, a typical Washington, D.C. payoff. That's why, actually there's one, um, one state that doesn't have to go under Obamacare because the deal was made with the senator if he would sign the bill that his state would be exempt because they couldn't do it honestly. It's a multi-million dollar payoff, ladies and gentlemen. See, these things are, are real. He's paying off the king, he's putting so much in the king's coffers, and the king then, seeing he was serious, took the ring off his right hand, which is the signet ring, and he gave it to Haman, the son of the doubled, the Agagite, the Jews enemy, and the king said unto Haman, the silver, it's yours, the people also, Do with them as it seems good to thee, because it's gonna take some finances to pull this whole thing off, and he says, okay, all the money that you've given, I'm gonna give you charge of it, you make sure that this is done. I believe that you're telling me the truth, we need to uh, take care of these Jews. We've got the United Nations, everything is backing you right now, 127 provinces all on your side. And then, where the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded under the kings to the governors and to every that were in every province, to the rulers of the people of every kingdom according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language in the name of the king, it was written and sealed with the king's ring, because the king's ring was on the finger of the magnificent Haman. And letters were sent by post to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill to cause to perish all Jews, young and old, little children and women, and one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to take the spoils of your prey. And this is what we see in the, uh, Europe's version of this, Hitler's version of it, in the Museum of the Extinct Race, uh, the great, um, film out there, documentary, The Rape of Europa, to see exactly what was done, uh, the absolute murder of millions and millions of Jews, the plundering of everything that they had, and this was what the plan was back then. So the copy of the writing, for a command was given in every province to be published and all the people, that they should be ready against that day. So the post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan, the palace, and the king and Haman sat down to drink some courvoisier, exo cognac, but the city of Shushan was in absolute turmoil. And when, chapter four, verse one, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, he rent his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. And you could imagine the torment in his soul because he knows that he's responsible. He could have just kept his mouth shut, so to speak, and bowed to Haman like everyone else and pretended that everything was okay. But no, he spoke up. And now they are going to not only kill him, but they're gonna kill every living Jew in the empire, which means the world would be Judenrein. There would be no Jews left. This is exactly the position of Hamas and Hezbollah. This is their position now. It is illegal to enter into the king's gate where where Mordecai was allowed to go because of his position but it was illegal to go in clothed in sackcloth and ashes. So Mordecai stayed outside and the entire empire, wherever this decree went, everyone, all the Jews were in great mourning. They were fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. They had one year left before the death sentence would be executed and there was nothing they could do about it. They were unarmed, they were living in the civilian population of the empire of uh, of Babylon. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told her the situation with Mordecai, that he's out there, your cousin is out there in sackcloth and ashes outside of the king's gate. Then the queen was exceedingly grieved. This, is not, this does not look good politically. And she sent Raymond to clothe him and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received them not. Then Esther called Hatak, which means truth, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. What, what is going on here? So Hatak went forth to Mordecai under the street of the city which was before the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened unto him, the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasures to destroy the Jews. Also, Mordecai gave Hatak a copy of the writing of the decree that was given to Shushan to destroy them, to show it to Easter and to declare to her and charge her that she should go unto the king to make supplication unto him and to request before him for all her people. And Hatak came and told Easter the words of Mordecai. Again Easter spoke unto Hatak and gave commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants of the people, the province, everybody knows that whoever, whether man or woman, whoever shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is just one law. You put him to death, except to whom the king shall hold forth the golden scepter, that he may live. But I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Well, Hadassah's now been queen for five years. She may be a little past her prime, and he's got, you know, perhaps thousands of concubines, and so, you know, you know she, she's, you know, she's not, uh, not first on the list here uh, for the last 30 days. And they told Mordecai Easter's words. Then Mordecai commanded, okay, you tell my cousin this, do not think that you will escape because you're in the king's house more than all the Jews, for if you hold your peace at this time, there shall be an enlargement, there shall be a greatness and deliverance arise to the Jews from some other place, but you and your father's house will be destroyed and who knows whether you have come into the kingdom that everything that has happened to you in your whole life, your parents being killed, me raising you, you me then helping you, and you getting into the gang's house, and now that you are the queen, How do you know that all this didn't happen? That Vashti didn't refuse to come in before the king and all this stuff, that the whole fabric of life wasn't so that this moment was designally designed by the Almighty, that all this happened, that you would be in the king's palace for such a time as this. Then, Easter bade them return to Mordecai this answer. Go gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan. Fast for me. Do not eat and do not drink for three days, day or night. I also and my maidens will fast likewise and so will I go unto the king, which is against the law. If I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Easter had commanded him. Chapter five. Now it came to pass on the third day that Easter put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Easter, the queen, standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Easter the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Easter drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said unto her, and I'm sure she was like, Whew. You know, this is after three days of no eating and no drinking. Her life is on the line. And he said, Come, dear. Then the king said, What wilt thou, Queen Easter? What is your request? It shall be given unto thee, even to the half of the kingdom. And she said, well, that sounds like a pretty good divorce settlement. Uh, That's, uh, let's see, uh, 63.5 empires, uh, kingdoms. I'll take that. No. No. It's a figure of speech. It is a magnanimous offer of royalty even to the half of my kingdom. Do you think he would really give the half of his kingdom if she said it? No, there's no way on God's green earth. This is just royal fluff. Then said the king unto her, what wilt thou? Unto the half of my kingdom? And Easter answered in verse four, if it seemed good to the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. And the king said, cause Haman to make haste that he may do as Easter has said. He said, yes dear, we'll be at your banquet. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Easter had prepared, just the two of them. Now what does she know? We don't know what she knows because she's been praying and fasting and we know that you're gonna watch divine revelation unfold here. You wanna know how to walk by the spirit? Read the book of Easter. And the king said unto Easter at the wine and cheese party, it says a banquet of wine, what is your petition? and what will be granted thee? What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, and it shall be performed. Anything you want, sweetheart, it's yours. Just ask, just say the word. Here, here, here's a blank check, just fill it out. I'll sign it, no problem. What do you want? Then Easter answered and said, my petition and request is, if I found favor in your sight, And if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them and I will do tomorrow as the king has said. See, now this is what we, Shaul in the Brit Hadashah in 1 Corinthians refers to as word of knowledge and word of wisdom. One of the, uh, these are two of the manifestations of the spirit. See, when the spirit gives information whereby you could not know it by the senses realm. This is what we put in the category of revelation, divine revelation. But see, she doesn't tell the king what the revelation is. See, She gets the revelation, this is word of knowledge. It is a word, it's a, okay, this is what you do. And the word of wisdom is how to carry it out. She doesn't tell the king, she tells nobody. It's information for her, for her alone to act on, and if she does it right, then we're going to see the result. Then went Haman forth that day, joyful and with a glad heart. He has just been invited. It's only the emperor and only him. It's like He walks out, he's at the top of his game. He walks out, oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a wonderful feeling. Everything's going, my. And then there's Mordecai. Mordecai, this dupe, this disrespectful jerk, the man who gives me no respect. He I can stand this man. As soon as he walks out, he saw Mordecai in the king's gate. He didn't stand up. He didn't move for him. He was full of indignation. Nevertheless, he restrained himself. He wanted to strike out. He wanted to take out his scimitar and strike him down right then. but he, no, he's holding it back. And when he came home, he called for his friends. And he called Zeresh, his wife, Zeresh is Persian for Goldie, so from now on, we're just gonna call her Goldie, okay? So he called his friends and called Goldie, and Haman told them of the glory of his riches, his magnificence, that's why my name is that magnificent one. I am Haman the Magnificent, everybody bows down to me. I am the top one in the entire empire. Look at all my children and all the things that the king has promoted me. He showed him his ribbons, his badges, his notoriety, his honor that he had received. And he had been advanced among all the princes and servants of the king in verse 12. And Haman said, yes. Even Easter, the queen, let no man come in with the king under the banquet except me, myself. There is nobody greater. I am the greatest. And tomorrow, I'm invited also under her with the king, and no one else is coming, yet All this avails me nothing, as long as I see Mordecai, this Jew, sitting in the king's gate. Then said Goldie, his wife, and all his friends, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high, and tomorrow speak unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet and the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. Now, when reading this, first of all, the first thing you have to do is get out of your mind that the word gallows is some kind of place where a 13-knotted hangman's noose from the Old West is positioned on this beam with a trap door, and that this whole thing apparatus is up 50 feet high, and that Haman is going to then hang Mordecai around the neck. The word gallows here in Hebrew is simply the word wood. He caused the wood to be made. A wood 50 feet high. Now, let's go back to Genesis for just a moment. Genesis 40, 22, It says that Pharaoh hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Remember in the prison, there was a butler and a baker and the butler, the one that gave the, the wine uh, into the king's hand was restored to his position but the baker said that in three days you're gonna be hanged, well what does that mean? It doesn't mean hang with a hangman's noose. No, hanging in Egypt as in, and in this was part of uh, Egypt now, You know, this is much, much later, but remember, from Ethiopia to the Indus River all the way to Greece, this is what they did. They had wood that was sharpened and they hung people on this sharpened wood that came up to a slender point and people were then hung on it. Now, how were they hung out? Let's continue on. In Joshua, chapter 10, verse 26, we read, Joshua smote them, slew them, and then hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon trees until the evening. Now, the, the word trees, as soon as you see this in your mind, you have a picture of, of regular trees, but it's the word eights. And you just look it up in, in a Strong's Concordance, which is really one of the most simple, um, you know, even elementary, it's elementary, it's not, even, it's not even high school, okay? A Strong's Concordance is an elementary concordance. It's among the simplest concordances you can get, and even there it says tree, wood, timber, stock, plank, stock, stick, gallows. And when the word gallows comes up, it is referring to an impaling stake. They killed these people and then hung their dead bodies on these impaling stakes for all to see. In Ezra 611, it says, I've made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let them be hanged thereon, and let his house be a dunghill, for this very thing. Whoever alters this word, let timber be pulled down from their house and let them be hanged on it. How do you hang people on timber pulled down from their house? You build a gallows or an impaling stake and then you impale these people on the stake. And then let their house be a dunghill. And what do they do? All the openings, they close up. The second story, they open up and then burrow down, make a hole in the in the second floor, down into the bottom, and that is becomes literally the dunghill, or for that village, it's the public latrine. This is what will be done to their house. If this is what's done to your house, ladies and gentlemen, this is the ultimate disgrace for your family. You know, that means pretty much your family's been completely destroyed, and everyone's memory of you is, Oh yeah, uh, that's the Jacob's uh, latrine that you have heard about. You know the Jacob's latrine? Oh yes, the ones that used to work for the king? Oh yes, the old Jacob's latrine. Hmm, okay. Now we understand, make his house a dunghill. Now to understand this, uh, uh, this impaling, because see, to, for the timber to be then set up into a paling stake 50 feet high is uh, Herodotus that said that that Darius, the father of Xerxes, hung over 3,000 Babylonians when he took the city. He impaled them. He didn't hang them on hangman's noose. He said that he impaled them. Now, how is this generally done? Well, if you really want to exhibit some excruciating pain, you don't impale the people first. First of all, you arrest them Then, like his design for Mordecai, is to then tie his hands behind his back and then upon this scaffolding, they would then go up and then they would seat this person on this sharpened impaling stake. Seat him on a needlepoint impaling stake that then gets bigger and bigger as it expands out. Even if he didn't, his hands were not tied. A man seated on an impaling stake would be in such excruciating pain for hours. And it doesn't matter how strong you are to reach underneath you and to try to pry yourself off from an impaling stake 50 feet high to where everyone sees you. This is an example to the whole world. This is what happens to the enemies of Haman. At 50 cubits, this is like 75 feet tall. This is twice as tall as a telephone pole. So imagine a city street telephone pole sharpened to a needle point and then finally broadening out to about this big at five feet down. You would hope you would die in the first five or six hours. But every time you moved, every muscle twitch, every relaxation, everything that you did, that point would go deeper and deeper and deeper. And if it missed your heart, and then took out one of your lungs, and then went up into your throat, and finally your brain. Whew, man. You wanna put that gallows where? Ladies and gentlemen, give me a 13 knotted hangman's noose from the Old West any day. Do not let me die on the gallows of Haman. Well, this brings us into the Brit Hadashah, in fact. I want you to go to First Samuel chapter 31, verse 3, because uh, this gives us an idea of what it means when it says that these people would be hanged. Joshua hung them on these people trees on these impaling stakes that let timber be brought, let their house be assembled, take the roof off, make this a public ritual train, and then the roof timbers sharpen them and then impale these people on them if they break the Torah. You know, he's getting serious now in Ezra. You know, these people have gotta get back in line and so it says that the battle went sore in 1 Samuel chapter 31 verse three. The battle went sore against Saul and the archers hit him and he was gravely wounded by the archers. Sore wounded, it's more than just sore. I mean, it's, it, it, this means gravely, he was wounded unto death. Then said Saul unto his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not for he was deathly afraid, therefore Saul took a sword, fell upon it, and that is when Saul hanged himself. He hung himself on his sword, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he likewise fell upon his sword and died with him, so Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men that same day, they all died together. Now, I wanna take you into the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, verse 39, and it says, and we are all witnesses of these things which he did, Yeshua did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Now we come into Roman times, ladies and gentlemen. They slew him, they hung him on a tree. And uh, th- this uh, tree is a Zulon, Zulon. In, uh, in your Strong's Concordance, number 3586, and whenever people use strong Concordance numbers, it drives me nuts, so I just did it because Strong's numbers are not the Bible. It goes, Strong's number this, that, no. They quote it like it's some big authority. It's the juvenile version of a concordance, okay? But, wood, A, that which has been made from wood. One, A, one, as a beam from which one is suspended. A gibbet, a cross. Now we know that Yeshua was hanged on a tree. Was he impaled on a gallows? No, because now we are in Roman times. They don't impale people, they hang them on a cross. Ah, let's uh, let's go into this. In John 19.31, therefore the Jews, Because it was a preparation so that the bodies would not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was a high day, they besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Because it was the preparation. The preparation to what? Well, it's the preparation of the Passover. And this is what it tells us in the same chapter in verse 14 of John 19, it was a preparation of the Passover about the six hour. Pilate said unto the Jews, behold your king. It's the preparation of Passover. Now this word cross is the word in Greek staros. And staros according to Strong's Number one is an upright stake, especially a pointed one. It could be an impaling stake. Was Yeshua impaled on a stake? It gave us a description of it, he was nailed to a staros. Number two, a cross. Why would they use the word staros, which could also be cross? Because this is what the Romans did. They worshiped Mithra, the sign of Mithra was the Babylonian T or tau for the cross of Mithra or the cross of Tammuz, Tammuz, the Babylonian tau. A well-known instrument of the most cruel and ignominious punishment borrowed by the Greeks and Romans from the Phoenicians to were fixed among the Romans down to the time of Constantine the Great, the guiltiest criminals, particularly the basest slaves. This is Strong's Uh, his description here. So you see that one place it says that he was hanged on a tree. Oh, and so now, oh, we use this one example. Okay, well Jesus, it was a growing tree and Jesus was actually on a growing tree. That's one usage of it. You've got to look at the culture, people. Josephus said at one time, they had 2,000 Jewish men in chains waiting for the next cross to become available because it took up to a week to die on a cross. And so now this person dies, they hang the next one. They knew what a cross was. You can't turn it into a tree. You can't turn it into a gallows at this particular point. And then, now we read in Matthew 27, five. Judas cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that he built a gallows, like in the Old West, got a 13 knotted hangman's noose, and hanged himself? No. We've got to go with what is going on, what is the culture. Acts 1.18 says, Judas, uh, and this is uh, uh, Peter, Kepha, Give us the detail. Judas purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out and it became known in all Jerusalem as a gross hematos or akeldama, or the field of blood. It was a bloody, gory mess. Now how could that happen if he was hung by an old west, 13 knotted hangman's noose? It wouldn't, how did he hang himself? He took his sword, he put the hilt on the ground just like King Saul did and he hung himself on his sword. He impaled himself on his sword. Remember the light of, night of the Last Supper? Yeshua asked his disciples if they ever lacked anything during his, his, uh, the time he sent them out in ministry, they said no. He said, okay, I'm telling you, if you got a coat, extra coat, sell. If you got money, go out and buy yourself a sword. Now, go, do. Of course, no, it wasn't the last supper, it wasn't the Passover meal. He just sent his disciples to go out and buy swords or to sell something in Aaron's Park and Pond and buy a sword. And and Peter said, well, we've got two here already. Judas may have been one of them. And they said, that's enough. We're not trying to take over the world here. Two's enough, but Judas took his sword and he impaled himself on it, and all of his bowels gushed out, and it was well known in Jerusalem that place was known as the field of blood. See, ladies and gentlemen, the words in your English version of the Bible had to be interpreted in light of their biblical usage, not just at the time of translation, but in their historical usage as well. All these things must be understood in order for us to get the proper context. And now we see in ancient Persia, under the reign of Achaos, Xerxes, that Haman and Agagite, the enemy of the Jews from the moment we walked out of Egypt These murderers are now trying to murder us again and to wipe us all out and the first one that has got to go. He is not going to be satisfied until a 75-foot tower with a pointed beam and he has Mordecai, the Jew, seated upon it with that gallows protruding up inch by inch, hour after hour. Now we're going to find out if one of the most powerful, one of the wealthiest men in the world, one who has the signet ring and can make anything happen in the Novus Orders of the New World Order of Xerxes, is going to have his way with a little Jew. The name of the Almighty is relevantly absent from the scroll of Easter. When we are surrounded by pagans in the everyday non-miraculous world, when it looks like we are all alone and our search for the meaning and divine purpose of our life seems unfruitful, even when there appears to be no hope in surviving the plans of the enemy to exterminate and enslave the children of the Most High in their new world orders, he is there and he is is not silent. In the scroll, the Megillah of Hadassah, or Easter, as she was known uh, after she went in to uh, be the bride of the king, we read in the very first chapter that after a six-month world fair, then there's a seven-day elegant feast. And at the end of that feast, the king asks the queen to then come before everyone in the culminating event of the entire six month event. Vashti, the queen, disrespects the king and so Vashti is vanquished. Three years later, a global beauty contest is held and after one year of preparation, then these young maidens are brought in before the king and the one that the king desires, she will be the queen. It just so happens that a Jewish girl wins. And it just so happens that this Jewish girl who has a cousin named Mordecai happens to overhear of a conspiracy to assassinate the king and he tells Queen Esther. Later, Haman and Amalekite now called Palestinian by the United Nations, is elevated to second in command and initiates a pogrom to exterminate all the Jews in a single day. He casts lots, Pur, or Purim, casts lots, and it is going to be decided by blind chance, the very day, in which the Jews, helpless in the vice of fate, are going to be exterminated in one day. It just so happens that that date falls on the last month of the entire year. Well, just a couple of months later, the queen risked her life to make an appeal to the king. She does the right thing regardless of personal risk to herself. And at that audience with the king, instead of her being put to death for her presumptuousness, instead the king holds out the golden scepter and accepts her and she makes a request to the king. And this request is that the king and Haman attend a wine banquet that she has prepared for them that day. At the wine banquet, the king then asks her, what will you have? I will give you anything, even to the half of my kingdom. And she says, well, if you really will honor my request, then I ask that you come again tomorrow and to the banquet that I have prepared, and that day I will make my request known. Well, it just so happens that that afternoon, as Haman walks out of the banquet, being honored by the queen and the only one in attendance other than the king, Haman sees that Mordecai does not respect him, and so he goes home and builds a stake 75 feet high to publicly impale Mordecai, well, Just so happens that that night the king cannot sleep. And so he calls for the book of records. If anything's going to put him to sleep, it's going to be the book of records. And it just so happens that the book of records opens to the foiled conspiracy and the hero of this conspiracy to kill the king, which is Mordecai. Well, it just so happens that the next morning, Haman approaches the king to ask permission to impale Mordecai on his 75 foot gallows or impaling stake. But just before he opens his mouth, then the king says what should be done unto the one that the king desires to honor. And Haman thinking that, oh, who would he want to honor more than me, comes up with the most elaborate plan, the most grandiose idea that anyone's ever thought of of how to honor the person that the king desires to honor, thinking it's going to be him. Well, to his surprise, it just so happens that Haman is ordered to publicly honor Mordecai. Well, that afternoon at the second banquet, the chain of events will prove to all and it will forever be remembered. In fact, a proclamation is going to be made at the end of this entire record that it will be forever remembered that he is there and he is not silent. Please open the Megillah of Easter to chapter seven and we begin reading. Hadassah or Easter, chapter seven, verse one. So the king And Haman came to the banquet with Easter the queen. Now, just before this happens, when when Mordecai uh, uh, is is honored by Haman, Haman then immediately goes back and tells his friends, he tells his wife what had happened, and they, they say, you know, surely, they prophesy, surely you are gonna fall before this man. And he is just absolutely wrenched with, with grief over the entire turn of events that have happened that have all come upon him. He is the second in command of the entire empire and his word is law. And yet Mordecai refuses to bow to him. Now he's had to honor Mordecai and now he goes back and tells his family and his family is saying, you're in big trouble. And right while this is being said to him, then the emissaries of the king come in to hasten him to bring him to the banquet. So the king and Haman came to the banquet with Easter the queen. And the king said unto Easter the second day at the banquet of wine, what is your petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be given to thee. What is your request? It shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. And the queen answered and said, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, And if it please the king, let my life be given to me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we have been sold, both I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to utterly perish. But if we'd just been sold for slaves, for bondmen and bondwomen, I would have held my tongue although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. It would, it would damage the entire empire, but if if we were only sold as slaves, I wouldn't have said anything about it. Then the king, Rosh, answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he? Where is he? Who dares to presume in his heart to do this wicked, vile thing? disgusting thing to take of my white queen and, and Mordecai that I have just honored this very day. I have given him the greatest honor in the empire. Who is the one who has done this? Who has done this? And Easter said that adversary an enemy is this Wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went out into the garden palace. And Haman stood up to make a request for his life to Easter the Queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the queen by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden after having given this some thought. And as he returned into the pa- uh, place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen upon the bed where Hadassah Easter was. Then the king said, Will he is he going to rape the queen right in front of me, right in my own house? And just as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. It's over. It's done. And Harbona. One of the chamberlains said before the king, behold, look, you can see it from here, a gallows, 50 cubits high, 20.62 inches, it is 75 feet high, which Haman had made for Mordecai. Mordecai, you know, the one that spoke good for the king, the one that, that stood up and exposed this conspiracy where they planned on killing you, this is the gallows, the impaling stake that stands in the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him there on, impale him. But I don't want you to just put him on top and set him on top. I want it to be slow this time. I want you to set him on top of that sharpened stake 75 feet tall in front of everyone where they can see this and I want it to be slow. Don't set him down too hard. I want this to last for hours. So they impaled Haman on the impaling stake, on the gallows that, they, that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath was pacified. Just so happened, people. He is there and he is not silent. Chapter eight, verse one, on that day did the king, Akashveros, give the house of Haman, the Jews enemy, unto Easter, the queen. The house, everything that he owned, all of his wealth, all of his servants, everything that was left, it all belonged to the queen and it was in her hands. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. This is my cousin Mordecai. He brought me up when my my father and my mother died. He was the one that brought me up from a youth. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. Now, Mordecai, which means little, insignificant, Nothing of great stature. Mordecai was then set over the house of Haman by Easter, his cousin, gave him the house of Haman, all of his wealth, everything that he had, Easter, Hadassah, his cousin didn't need it, and he now has a signet ring, and he is elevated to the number two command in the entire empire. And it says in verse three, and Easter spake again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the devices of Haman, the Agagite, which means the as of the royal line of Agag, who is an Amalekite, and his device, which he devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter to Adassa and she arose and stood before the queen. So she was uh, she was uh, back off. At the time, she was pleading in tears before him. And and this is the thing we we learn in the early chapters and and from a history that you do not go before the king and the emperor. In a uh, condition of being sad. He doesn't need your problems, okay? He's got his own problems in running the empire. And if a butler or a wine taster like uh, uh, Nehemiah coming before him and is a sad countenance, Um, we see that Nehemiah was afraid because the the king saw that he was of sad countenance and it's not the king's job to take care of everyone's personal problems. That's the job of the chaplain. He said, go see the chaplain. Sounds like a personal problem to me. I don't need your personal problems. And so uh, Nehemiah was afraid when he went in and the king said, you're sad because he could lose not only his job, he could lose his head over this thing. The queen is is crying, weeping at his feet and he could have her executed for it again. But instead he holds out the golden scepter and she comes toward the king and stands before him. Verse five, and said, if it please the king, if I have found favor in your sight and the thing seems good before the king and if I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. Now, this commandment that was written, signed by the seal, the signet ring of the king, and so it has the authority of the king, and it is now the law of the Medes and Persians. It cannot be changed. Nobody can change it. The king can't even change it. Even though it was maliciously done, yet he has nothing he can do to change it. And now it's gone into all the provinces that on the 13th month of the day of the month of Adar, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is when everyone is going to be, uh, all the Jews are going to be executed. Now we're in verse six. How can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? How can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king said unto Easter the queen and to Mordecai, look, behold, I have given Easter the house of Haman and they have impaled him on his gallows because he desired to lay his hands on the Jews. Write also for the Jews as it likes you in the king's name. Seal it with the king's signet ring for the writing which is written in the king's name and seal with the king's ring no man can reverse. Then were the king's scribes called. The king invites the scribes in. We're in verse nine of chapter eight here. And the the king's scribes called at that time, it, it, it was the third month, that is the month of Sivan. On the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews. And to the lieutenants, and the deputies, and rulers of the provinces, which were in India, under Ethiopia, even a one hundred and twenty-seven provinces, one hundred and twenty-seven kingdoms in his realm, from Ethiopia to the Indus River in India—it's all his, all the way to—is it Sardis that uh, the Greeks came and, and burned? Uh, I believe it was Sardis, and uh, that's what uh, set Xerxes on the war path against the, against the Greeks. So all of this land, 127 empires. Okay. And it said, write into them in their language and to the Jews according to their writing. And so now he's writing in the script that the Jews will understand. And um, we do not know at this point if this is, uh, is still uh, the Paleo-Hebrew or the modern day Babylonian Hebrew um, uh, that, that is done at this particular point in, in time. Um, it could very well still be pale, what we call a Paleo-Hebrew at this time. But um, uh, uh, in fact, there is really, there's no difference between uh, a Paleo-Hebrew and the modern, uh, Jewish script, except for the, the pictographs of the ancient Paleo-Hebrew. Um, it is uh, If you take the, the Hebrew text, uh, just a, in a Bible program, the Hebrew text, and you take, paste in the Word document, and then you change the font to Paleo-Hebrew, it's a one-to-one conversion. There's no difference. Uh, those who say, well, the Paleo-Hebrew is pronounced this way, you know, whenever someone says that, you know they don't know what they're talking about because nobody knows how Paleo-Hebrew was pronounced. It was Hebrew, it's just a font change. It's like the difference between Ariel and Times New Roman, except it's quite a bit different there. And so you do have the ancient uh, Paleo-Hebrew uh, pictographs that are there in the ancient Hebrew uh, that you don't have in the Babylonian Hebrew, uh, but it is, those, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, our tour, uh, every year I take our tour up to Mount Gerizim and we go into the, the home and the museum of the son of the high priest of the Samaritans and Yafet, uh actually reads from the ancient Paleo Hebrew. All of the Hebrew that the, uh, the, the scrolls are all written in and all the books for the Samaritans, still to this day are all ancient Paleo Hebrew. But he can read modern Hebrew just as fluently because there's no difference. It's all done the same way. And it all has the same pronunciation by the Samaritans today. Whether it's written in modern Hebrew or ancient Hebrew, it's all the same pronunciation because this is the way they pronounce these particular letters. And so now we see that, you know, no matter what it is, whether it's Paleo Hebrew, whether it is more modern Babylonian Hebrew, uh It it really doesn't matter, it may have been in both to make sure that everyone could be communicated well with and this is what was written. And he wrote in verse 10, in Akashrosh's name, seal it with the king's ring, sent it by letters, by post on horseback, writers on mules and camels and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life and to destroy, and to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and, and province that would assault them, both their little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Akashros, namely, upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And then it says in verse 13, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the post that rode upon the mules and the camels went out, being hastened, impressed on by the king's commandment. Now, this is the third month. And yet they need to get to the entire empire because now it has been three months that the other order had gone out from the signature of Haman, and now it's it's getting around to all the kingdom. And people are hearing about this through the entire empire. Now it's three months later and another post has to come out because now to get to these, this far ends of the empire to then allow the Jews to circumvent this order to exterminate them, they have to got to get ready. They have got to be able to get the armaments and everything that they need to be able to protect themselves because now they have an order from the king. They can arm themselves, they have the right to keep and to bear arms now, and to get ready against an assault from the outside and an assault from the inside. Because again, these are people in the empire, in the provinces, that are planning on taking the people out because they see the advantage of wiping out all the Jews. And so, now that the the Jews have the order and they can arm themselves, now they get ready. And, And so we will uh, continue on, And the decree was given at Shushan, the palace. Verse 15, and Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad because a righteous man is now in charge of the empire directly under King Akashorosh. And so, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When evil is brought in and you have an evil person sitting in that seat of authority, then the people are greatly distressed and saddened because a totalitarian government right around the corner, we see that, that Mordecai is one that does good and looks out for the welfare of his people and not out for the welfare of himself. We'll see that a little later in the text. And then in verse 16, and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. People honored them. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness and they they, they had a feast. It was a celebration and a good day, Yom Tov. And many of the people of the land became Jews because the respect of the Jews fell upon them. And so we see quite a change in the empire, to where those were not even Jewish said, you know, I want to be one of you, uh, one of you. I want your God to be my God. I want your people to be my people. I want to attach myself to Israel. Now, chapter nine, verse one. Now it is the twelfth month. That is the month of Adar. It's the 13th day of the month that the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put into execution in the day that the Jews hoped to have power uh, over them. Uh, excuse me, Excuse me. The, the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it turned to the contrary, that the Jews had power over those that hated them. Then the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Akashros to lay hand on such as sought their hurt. And no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. And all the rulers of the provinces, the lieutenants, the deputies, the officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. Mordecai is second in command. If they don't stand with them, there, is going, there are now going to be consequences to be paid for those who stand with evil. And so, Mordecai was great in the king's house. Mordecai, which means little, insignificant, now he is great in the king's house. And his fame went out through all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, waxed greater and greater. The little man waxed greater and greater and greater. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and with slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. And in Shushan the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. And the 10 sons of Haman, and I'm not going to read their names because I do not want to pay them any respect. I do not want their names to be remembered. I want them to be blotted out as Haman's name is blotted out. All of the Amalekites who stand against the people of God, may their name be blotted out. May Hitler's name be blotted out. And so the 10 sons of Haman, who was the son of the doubled or Hot Meditha, the enemy of the Jews, they slew; they killed them all, killed every one of the ten sons of Haman. But on the spoil they did not lay their hand. And we also see that this is a repeat of what we see with with Avram came back from the slaughter of the kings, and the things that his men took. That was one thing, but. Abraham said, I'm not gonna take a thing, I'm not going to uh, take any goods, any spoils, or anything from you, lest it be said that you've made me rich, because the Almighty is the one that that is my provider. He's the one that takes care of me. And this is what the believers, the children of Abraham can rely on to this very day, that we do not depend upon the world for our sustenance. We depend upon him. He is the one who's put in place his laws and he's told us how to handle things, what to do with them. We see that at the end of this book that, that part of the celebration is to, at this point, to give to the poor. Take care of those who have less or little and to minister to the poor, the widows, the orphans. All these things are, are, are eternal rules that, that just never go away in the scripture but they did not lay their hand on the spoil. They let other people take it, but they did not kill these people uh, for the spoils. They killed them because they needed to be killed, because they were planning on murdering and killing them and taking everything that they had, and so they were the ones that took the stand and said that we are not going to lay our hand on the spoils of this very thing. It was on that day, Adar 13, that the number of those that were slain in Shushan, the palace, 500, was brought before the king. And the king said unto Easter the queen, the Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the palace, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? And so they immediately sent an email out Uh, (laughs) Right, that's a good question. You know, only those that are very nearby that they could have uh, uh, someone on a horse or a a swift dromedary uh, get there, would they even know this? And, And it says, so what's your petition? And it should be granted thee. And what is your request further? What shall be done? because they really didn't have any idea what happened in the rest of the province at this time. Then said uh, Easter, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow according unto this decree and let Haman's 10 sons be hanged impaled upon the gallows. Now we see an impalement that takes place after the bodies are are after the people are dead. And this is the very thing that we see in the time of Joshua uh, that they were hanged upon 10 trees, etz, which is the same word for gallows here, etz, which is an impaling stake. They hung the people after they were killed on an impaling stake as the dishonor uh, because as it is written, uh, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a impaling stake a tree, an impaling stake, a staros in Greek if you please. And so here it is, it it is the the ultimate in insult to take a dead body and then to impale them one after another, now they're 11 deep. They've got Haman on the bottom who's been impaled vertically from the seated position all the way through coming out his mouth and then you got his sons jammed one on top of another uh, all right all the way down uh, uh, on this gallows. And the king commanded that it be so done. Okay, go ahead. Impale the rest of his sons and let it be done in Shushan because we can get the word out throughout the entire uh, city of Shushan. And so they gathered themselves together on the 14th day also of the month of Adar and they slew 300 at Shushan. But on the prey they did not lay their hand. But the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together. They stood for their lives. They had rest from their enemy and slew their foes 75,000 in one day. But they laid not their hands to the prey. On the 13th day of the month of Adar, and uh, and this is what they did on the 13th day, they killed 75,000 in the empire on that one day didn't take any of the, of the spoils uh, for, uh, ex- uh, for killing these people who were gathered together to kill them and that's an important point. They just didn't go out and start butchering everyone. The ones that came after them, they showed absolutely no mercy. You never show mercy upon the merciless because if you do, then you are then not being merciful to the righteous. And so on the 14th day, uh, 17th verse, and on the 14th day of the same, they rested. That's all of the rest of the empire. They made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews that were in Shushan assembled together on the 13th day and on the 14th day, and that's when they did their executing. So it was 500 the first day, it was 300 the next day, plus the 10 sons of of, um, Haman and then on the 15th day of the same they rested. They made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in unwalled towns made the 14th day of the month of Adar a day of gladness and feasting, and Yom Tov, a good day, and of sending portions of gifts. Thanksgiving gifts, one to another. And Mordecai wrote these things, and he sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Akash-Rosh, both nigh and far. And so now this word goes out from Mordecai about this. And what is it? To establish this among them, that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the month of Adar, every year. In verse 22, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, and they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions to one another, and gifts to the poor. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them, because Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews had devised against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor. That is, that cast the lot that by pure chance would it would be decided upon the day that they would be consumed and destroyed. But when Easter came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device which he devised against the Jews, now we're going back in time, and because this is, again, this is the writing of Mordecai that is now going out to the entire empire and saying that when Easter came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked, that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, that's Haman's device, should return upon his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So he's letting everyone know that Haman, who is the most revered, the most respected, one in the entire empire, when he came against the Jews, this is what happened to him. The king said, execute him, painfully, slowly impale him on the 75-foot gallows. Let everyone in the entire city of Shushan hear the screams for hours. And then after you kill his sons, then impale them. This is what the king determined should be done to these people. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur, which means lots, gambling, casting lots. Therefore, for all the words of this later, and of that which they had seen concerning this matter, and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them. See, again, this is those who, they're not even, they're not by by bloodline Israelites even. But yet they said, you know, we want your God to be our God. This is such an incredible testimony. We see that, You know, he is there. He's not silent. He's watching over his people. As Mordecai said to Hadassah, if you refuse to risk your life and go before the the king, you make your choice because the Almighty's hand is not shortened. He is going to rescue his people no matter what he has to do, but you and your household is going to be destroyed. You're gonna die. You're not gonna get out of this thing but the Almighty is going to make sure that his people are saved because he made a covenant with Abraham. All the land from the Euphrates to the Nile belongs to the sons of Israel. And any nation who stands against this will find themselves on the battlefield against the Almighty. He said, you choose, but who knows that if you have not, that you have not been raised up, that you are now the queen of the empire for such a time as this. And that is when Adasa decided that if she dies, she dies. And this is what she said, if I die, I die. I'm going to do this. But you fast for the next three days and three nights. Uh, so the, in verse 27, so the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, so it should not fail that they should keep these two days according to the writing, according to their appointed time every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, of every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed and this is why we celebrate Purim every year. This is why it takes us weeks to get ready and the teaching of this so that everyone understands because because the Gentiles are welcome to be grafted into the root of Israel. And if they're not grafted into the root, if they are not supplied by the sap, the nourishment from the root, they will wither, they will die, they will be cut off, and they will be cast aside, and they will be burned. This is what Shaul says, okay? Paul. And we see that the Almighty has worked in this thing, and it is those people who decided we are going to do this, and we're gonna do it forever, and we're always gonna remember this because these are the times, ladies and gentlemen, that we need to remember these things. When evil is seated in the halls of power, when Haman is uh, is seated in the halls of power in the United States and getting his authority from those who put him there, and we see that no amount of evil is going to be withheld from those who are now in power in post Christian America. We are living in this time again, and you have to decide if you are going to stand on the right side, if it will cost you your life, or if you're gonna cower and submit, and do, as Yeshua said, they, the believers, will hate and betray each other to death, because love will wax cold, because the Torah is gone from their hearts and lives, and all they've got left is some feel-good, sloppy agape churchianity. Well, verse 29, then Easter, the queen, the daughter of Avihail. So I guess we should now call her Hadassah. Everybody knows she's Jewish, okay, so we can forego the Easter, the, the Babylonian goddess of fertility name. Then Hadassah, the queen, the daughter of Avihael. And Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. And he sent the letters unto all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Akashverosh through all the empire of Xerxes to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed according as Mordecai, the Jew, and Hadassah, the queen, had enjoined them, and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of the fastings and their cry, ladies and gentlemen, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, this is what we do as children of Abraham. Jews, Israelites alike, all who have joined themselves into the root, and are children of Abraham by faith, keeping his commandments, this is something that we all decided we were going to do, and that's why we make it available for you to join with us. So our Purim celebration is for everyone, and we will be again broadcasting live and putting it out there for the world to join in our Purim celebration and as they they had enjoined them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their seed, the matters of the fastings and their cry, and the decree of Hadassah confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the scroll. Chapter 10, verse one, and the king Akasharos laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the seas because he was in charge and he laid a taxation upon everyone, everyone owed him allegiance. And all the acts of his power and his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai whereunto the king had advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Akashrosh, and great among the Jews, the little man was great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, their welfare, not getting everything in for himself. No, he was not like a senator or a congressman in there trying to milk it to death and to get a a paycheck for the rest of his life for doing little or nothing for the welfare of the people, no. He sought the wealth of his people and he spoke peace to all of his seed. Ladies and gentlemen, this is like the beginning of this because now what I'd like to do in our last few minutes is to take you into the book of Daniel, into the 11th chapter, into a prophecy that could not be figured out until both Purim and Hanukkah were put in place. And we're going to read in Daniel chapter 11, in verse one, uh, verse 31. Armies shall invade on his behalf, and they shall pollute the sanctuary's strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. Now, historically we know that 168, before the common error, that's what BCE, remember? BCE means before the common error because it has nothing to do with AD or BC according to a Catholic priest understanding of when Yeshua's birthday was. Even the Pope himself said that that priest was wrong. So it's before the common era. 168, Antiochus Epiphanes went in with his troops and placed the abomination that made desolate. They slaughtered a sow, roasted it on the altar, and uh, desolating the altar, placing that abomination at that time. But that's not the only time that it is going to be done in history. In Matthew chapter 24, it is Yeshua that says, therefore the end shall come when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel. When he stands in the holy place, Whoso reads, let him understand. See, there is yet another abomination of desolation that is going to be transpiring in the future, of which the one of Antiochus Epiphanes is a prophetic shadow picture. Three years exactly to the day, which was December 25th, also Kislev 25, in which the abomination of desolation was placed on the altar, the pig was was sacrificed on the altar, three years later, it just so happens that that is the day that they took the Temple Mount, they then raised, destroyed the brass statue of Zeus, who was born on December 25th, who was worshiped by the Greeks, and they broke down the altar and took over the Temple Mount. Later, they built a new altar. They dedicated it for eight days. That's how long it takes to dedicate an altar, and that is why it's called Hanukkah, or dedication. Literally, dedicating the altar. That is what Hanukkah means, and that's what it's all about. Now, let's continue on with Daniel, though. Now we're back in verse 32. And such as do wickedly against the covenant, and what is this covenant that it's speaking of? It is the covenant that Abraham and the, was uh, was made between the Almighty and Abraham. All the land from the and now belongs to the sons of Israel. You don't give the land away, you don't sell it, you don't lose it in a war. You stand your ground. All that do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupt by flatteries. But the people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. The definition of the word exploits is that which would make James Bond cringe under his bed in the fetal position for fear. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword. They're gonna be killed. Those that understand are gonna be killed. And they're going to fall by flame and by captivity and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they'll be helped with little help, but many shall cleave unto them with flatteries. That's why I don't give any ground to those who try to flatter, those who try to bribe, those who try to seduce, saying, oh, I'll give you money if you do it this way. I'll give you a bigger tithe if you do it that way. No, not going to go. Neither the flatteries nor the bribery. I will not be blackmailed. My ministry can't be blackmailed. People can try to steal from me. They can try to kill me, but I'm not backing down. So don't try it. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them, to purge them, and to make them white even unto the time of the end because the end is yet for a time appointed. And the king, in verse 36, shall do according to his own will, he'll exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper until the indignation be accomplished, for that which shall be determined shall be done neither shall he regard the God of his Father, nor the desire of women, neither regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now this is almost directly word for word quoted in Second Thessalonians chapter two. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. What day? The day of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in the King James, or Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord, when he comes and gathers us together unto him. That day of our gathering together shall not come except first there come hey apostasia the rebellious stand, and the man of sin revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, proclaiming he is God. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel for the end times, of which Yeshua then reiterated. Passion drives dries the throat. <clears> throat. Back to Daniel. Thus shall he do to the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. And this is what's going on with the United Nations, with the United States, you know, promising a billion dollars to resettle the Jews who leave Gaza. Well, what happens, while they are being forced out of their homes in the Gaza Strip after being there for 30 years, a no-name storm starts brewing, it hits the the most religious city in America, New Orleans, and the United States never pays the one billion dollars. You know where those Jews are today? They are still living in tents. They're still in squalor because the United States lied to Israel. The Almighty does not stand for that. You stand against his promise and divide the land for your own gain and he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace or his command post between the seas and the glorious holy mountain yet shall his end come. And then, in t- chapter 12, we have just a short time. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people, ha! We read right here, we can go right straight to, to Revelation chapter 12, and there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And then, we, we go back in, uh, in, in Daniel. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even at that same time. Yeshua quotes the very same thing. For then shall be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of time, nor nor ever shall be, and except those days will be shortened, no flesh should be saved. But for the like's sake, those days shall be shortened, shortened. And then back to Daniel, chapter 12. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Many of them which are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, like the stars forever and ever and ever. That's why I say, people, we are not interested in the extras on the set. We're looking for the stars, those who are gonna shine forever not those who want to play religion not those who you know want to you know take a, a look at the narrow path that leads to life and then decide to go the way of religion no they're the extras on the set those are the ones that are going to be raised to everlasting contempt we don't want to be in that category there are a lot of people that do want to be in that category let them go you can't do anything about those who are destined, who, who want to go to hell, who want to be raised to everlasting contempt, to be told, get out of my face, I never knew you. You who work anomia, those who are anomia, without Torah. You know, you want to live your own life, you want to do your own, the whole, own thing, this whole life, and then at the end think that you've got some kind of reward coming? Forget it. But thou, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even unto the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge will be increased. And then, oh, here it goes, ladies and gentlemen. I heard the angel clothed in linen and he said, it shall be for a time, a times, and a half a time. The very same phraseology that's used in Revelation 12:6, that the woman flees from the wilderness and fed for a time times and half a time, three and a half years. And then, it it goes on to say that, in verse nine, go your way, Daniel, the words are closed up and sealed to the end of time. And then, in verse 11, but I'll tell you, that from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, the abomination that makes desolate shall be set up, there shall be a thousand 290 days, ladies and gentlemen, from Purim to Sukkot in a three and a half year period of time, a little more than that because 1260 days, prophetically it's three and a half years, 1290 days is from Purim to Sukkot. It's exactly 1290 days. Blessed is he that waits and comes to the 1,335 days. From Aviv 10, which is the day the Passover lamb is paraded into the city of Jerusalem, the triumphal entry of Messiah, who said, You know, I've not come in my own name, I've come in the Father's name, you haven't received me, there's one coming in his own name. Aviv 10, the anti Messiah, makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 1,335 days later is Hanukkah, the dedication of the Messiah's millennial temple. But he says, Go your way to the end, you're gonna rest and stand in your lot. See, we learn from Shaul that the Feast of the Lord are prophetic shadow pictures of good things to come, the mechanism whereby the Almighty tells the end of time from the very beginning. And these numbers that could not be determined beforehand, we see that from Tevet 3, which is right at the end of the eight-day Hanukkah dedication, from 3 to Purim is exactly 2,300 evening and morning oblations. 1,150 days. From Purim to Sukkot, is 1290 days. From Aviv 10, the abomination of desolation, to Hanukkah is 1335 days. From Tishri 10, the confirmation of the covenant to Aviv 10 is 1260 days, or 42 months, or time, times and a half a time. And from Aviv 10, the abomination of desolation, to Tishri 10 is, again, which is Tishri 10, which is, Yom Kippur, 42 months, 1260 days, a time, times, and half a time. See, before Hanukkah and Purim were put in place, these things could not be known. Daniel was told, forget it, you're gonna be dead and in the grave before any of these come to pass. But yet the Almighty is in charge of the universe. What was done with the random toss of the twine, roll of the dice, or what have you, the Almighty was in charge at the time of Akashverosh. And he is in charge at the time of the Novus Ordo Seclorum, the one world government at the end of time who has their plans on exterminating all freedom from the face of the earth and turning this world into a prison planet. But the Almighty has a plan. Babylon will be destroyed and the king will reign. I'd like to leave you with this blessing. Yevarekha Yehovah, Yahir Yehovah, Yisa, Yehovah, Shalom, Bashem Yeshua, HaMashiach, Sar Shalom. Yehovah bless you and keep you. Yehovah make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Yehovah lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Shabbat Shalom, Shavua tov. Have a good week, and we'll see you back here next week. As we begin our exodus from Egypt,